Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. For the most part, New York City is a dog and cat sort of town. But this morning, Cityscape is for the birds and the people who love them. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki. Coming up, we'll go on a wild parrot safari in Brooklyn. We'll meet a Queens couple whose birds are more than just fine feathered friends. They're part of their family, all 23 of them. And we'll visit an art exhibit that presents bird calls as sung by humans. It's Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. In addition to the various bird-related stories on today's show, we'll also spread our wings to the music of Brooklyn musician Jody Kruskal. He recently brought his 100-year-old concertina into the studios to present some of the bird songs he performs. Let's hear from Jody now. There are bird songs all around us, and composers or people who write these fiddle tunes often take inspiration from the sounds around us. So there are a number of sort of bird quotes in these fiddle tunes. Uh, chickens, there's a lot of chicken songs, because I don't know why chickens are uh, more amusing or more familiar, perhaps, if you're living on farms, as most of us did 150 years ago. You know, people were, the, the chickens were part of your daily life. You got to know them, and you could hear them talking to each other, and there's, so there's some imitation uh, from these 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 old tunes. Uh, this is the hen's march or the midden. The midden is uh, a garbage heap or a dung heap, refuse heap, and the hen is very proud as she's marching over the, the garbage heap in, in the barnyard. And you can hear the hen kind of clucking away in her pride in this tune from England and Scotland. New York City has long been called an urban jungle, but some Brooklyn birds have put real meaning behind that reputation. For more than 30 years, wild parrots have called the campus of Brooklyn College home. I recently went out in search of the birds with the founder of the Brooklyn Parrot Society. My name is Steve Baldwin of the Brooklyn Parrot Society. We're standing at the intersection of Campus Road and uh, East 22nd Street, just about in the middle of Brooklyn. We're looking up at these enormous, they're kind of wild parrot condominiums. These are stick nests that are built into 75-foot-tall Corten steel light poles surrounding the soccer field. They're colonial in the sense that there's one giant structure and then multiple kind of one-bedroom parrot apartments in each one. Parrots in Brooklyn, I mean, who knew, really? They're a big surprise. Um, a lot of people outside of Brooklyn don't know about them, and a lot of people in Brooklyn are oblivious to them, and I think it's probably because everyone's walking around wearing their iPods. If you open up your ears, you can probably hear them. 
Describe them for us. They're lime green birds, about 12 inches long. The sound has been characterized as kind of the sound of baby dinosaurs screaming. What is the story behind how they got here? In 68, there was a shipment of these birds being sent to Kennedy Airport for distribution into the pet trade. Some kind of an accident happened, no one really knows what, but a bunch of them broke loose, and uh, I guess everyone expected them to die off. But instead, they came here and established themselves, refused to die, and uh, set up shop, and they've been surviving ever since. That's incredible, especially through our harsh winters. A lot of people think of parrots as tropical creatures living in some rainforest. These are actually mountain parrots. Where they come from, Argentina, they kind of live in the steppes below uh, the mountains. So they're used to very, very cold temperatures, uh, very, very high altitudes, harsh conditions. The other thing is they'll eat almost anything. They'll eat acorns, they'll eat leaf buds on trees, and in fact, I got a photo on my website of them eating pizza. The parrots actually have their own language. Uh, Ornithologists have analyzed their calling behavior to each other and have identified 11 different, let's call them words. So these are signals that indicate different situational realities. One call might be, let's say, a predator, in the air, let's let's take cover. Another one might be, uh, hey, there's food, you know, follow me. Another one uh, might be, um, I'm uh, I'm who I am. Who are you? Or you know, identify yourself, please, and so forth. So they're very intelligent. Uh, they're kind of the primates of the bird species, and they communicate. They also have a unique uh, strategy. I, I call it the Sentinel Alert System, wherein there's one bird who's always on watch. And uh, if he or she sees something, he'll alert the flock and kind of issue a general uh, kind of a red alert or yellow alert that will advise the other parrots as, as to what they should do. What kind of relationship do you think they have with other bird species here in the city? The bird species we find around here are the usual suspects, the pigeons, the starlings, the sparrows, and you know those are all introduced species too. There's a pretty benign relationship. I've never seen the parrots hassle the other birds. In fact, I think they kind of provide security in a way because, you know, there are predators in the air in Brooklyn, and so if the parrot uh, sights, uh, you know, a hawk, he'll warn his own flock, and then the other birds will all take off too. So, so I'd say the parrots actually uh, you know, make life a little bit better for, for all those other birds. How far will they travel from their nests? You know, most of the studies of these parrots have been done in South America, and so most of the literature is in Portuguese. So what I've been able to determine is that they'll travel, they can travel up to 20 miles to find food, and then they'll travel back to their colonial nest later on. But I think in Brooklyn, they don't have to travel that far because, you know, it's like that book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. There are a lot of great trees around here, and, and the parrots, you know, will eat uh, the little leaf, leaf buds. I didn't realize this until I started... Uh, studying these parrots, but, you know, they're these tiny little leaf buds, and they're, they're there all year round. You can find them in February, and uh, so the parrots will just sit on the trees and munch on these leaf buds, and it certainly meets their nutritional needs. There's another big colony in Brooklyn over at Greenwood Cemetery. There are a bunch of them down in South Brooklyn, Manhattan Beach, 
there are a few in Queens and uh, a bunch in New Jersey and kind of ranging up along the coast of New Rochelle and, and also into Connecticut. Are they a protected species here in New York City? No, they're not. They're in the same uh, category as uh, pigeons and starlings and sparrows. They have no special protection. What have you observed about their numbers? A lot of people have told me there used to be more parrots here where we're at at Brooklyn College than there are right now. In the old days, there might have been a few hundred. I'd estimate there are probably about 50 or 60 here now and probably about 40 over in Greenwood. So within all of Brooklyn, I'd estimate maybe 150, 200 birds. Not a lot. Unfortunately, it appears that there may be poaching going on, and by this I mean um, individuals uh, who've been capturing them and selling them to pet stores. kind of makes me very angry to think that a little bird would come all the way from Argentina, escape into the wild, survive, and then wind up in a cage. So... um well, we're, we're on Avenue I now, which is a street that kind of parallels the campus a couple of hundred yards away from the main colony. And we're looking up at, it's kind of a sad sight. It's a, it's a nest that was built by uh, a bunch of parrots a while ago, about 20 feet off the ground. And the nest is, is built around these, these electrical wires. It's kind of anchored in there by the guy wires and by the wires themselves. The way I determine whether a nest is active or not is I look on the, on the ground and if I can see that there are twigs that have been freshly cut, that have been discarded you know, or, or dropped accidentally, I'll be able to conclude that that's an active nest. But as you can see, there's nothing down there. So this nest, I know uh, last year it was uh, occupied by a trio of parrots, uh, mother, father, and a, and a juvenile. But now it's a sad sight. It's just... Uh, looking ragged and abandoned. It's possible that they were all captured and they're all living in the basement of a pet store now, you know. Parrots are pretty smart, and uh, if any of them were able to evade the poachers, they might have just said, you know what, this is a a lousy place to be. Uh, Let's move back closer to, you know, where most of the flock is and in a more secure environment. Security is pretty good for the parrots, you know, in Brooklyn. The ones who live on campus have, you know, uh, good security against poachers. The ones in Greenwood Cemetery, they've got uh, good security. The problem is with the parrots who live in these uh, power poles. They're you know they're lower to the ground. You know, occasionally uh, Con Edison will uh, measure the voltage on their grid and determine that a nest has to come down, and you know then the parrots will uh, you know lose their home. Are there more along this trip? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, no, really? This is not the only one. This 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 is why. Uh, this was almost an uninterrupted uh, skein of nests that runs for almost like a five-block period. And uh, the one we just looked at was a pretty small one. The other ones were more elaborate. I mean, they're still here, so we can look at them. But, you know, again, I, I kind of... I used to come up and down Avenue I all the time. and But now it, 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 it's very difficult for me to walk up and down the street because I, I, I have photos and memories of there being, you know... This, all this life and all this uh, uh, activity, and now it's just gone. However, wait a minute. All right, we're standing on the corner of 26th and Avenue I. Now, as I look down here, I see twigs. It's possible. It's possible that this nest is being rebuilt. Look at this. This is a freshly gnawed-off twig, about 14 inches long. That looks like a fresh cut, and that was definitely a cut made by a razor-sharp parrot beak. So I'm wondering whether or not 
the parrots might be back. You're hearing it. For, you're hearing it here first, folks. I wonder. And so I'm, this is gonna. I'm gonna be back here, and I'm gonna be looking because if the parrots move back to Avenue I, on the one hand, I'd be very happy. On the other hand, I'm thinking to myself, don't move back to this neighborhood because you're in jeopardy. Until we, you know, get in control of the poachers, if that's possible, they might be back. But it really does look to me like this nest may be being rebuilt. You take people on tours? Yeah, once a month, first Saturday of every month, uh, people will, I, I invite people to come out here. The tours are free, and, uh, you know, I've had people come from as far away as Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, and, uh, you know, they, they, a lot of them are blown away by the idea that there are these wild, uh, exotic uh, creatures living out here in, you know, good old-fashioned Brooklyn. Steve Baldwin is the founder of the Brooklyn Parrot Society. The group is online at brooklynparrots.com. Dogs and cats are undeniably the pets of choice in New York City, but there are a host of people who prefer to have birds. Barry and Gail Schwartz of Maspeth, Queens are among them. The Schwartzes share their home with 23 birds. Yes, that's 23 caged birds. But for Barry and Gail, their birds are their babies. For them, the constant squawking and throwing of food in their house is just part of what it means to be a parent. When I spoke with them at their home, I asked what they liked most about birds. They're sweet temperament. They're the way they they come to us when they want the attention. They'll just literally hang on the cage and just step out. And they're part of the, you know, part of the family, and they're just very sweet. You don't even have to say step up. They come right out, some of them. You don't even have to give them a command. Um, I find it fascinating that we can form some sort of relationship with uh, a non-mammal species like this. They're the, you know, descendants of dinosaurs, of of, uh, Archaeopteryx. And uh, here they are 50 million years later, and, and parrots have evolved, of all the bird species, they believe that parrots, the reason we can socialize with them is because in the wild, this is what they've been doing for tens of thousands of years. They live in social groups. Relationship uh, with all the birds, really, basically, it's like, I hate to say this, but they're my children. Um, A lot of people call them fids, feathered kids. Yeah, feathered kids. I mean, we have no children of our own, you know. Well, I do. Well, I I have a son from a prior marriage, 11-year-old. Matter of fact, this cockatiel, uh, Zeus, that's my son's cockatiel. (laughs) Well, we, yeah, we have no children, and the birds have really basically become, you know, our our children. But uh, they just, you know... You have a special bond with them because they know when you're feeding them. They know exactly when we're in the when we come home. They just want to be part of the family, which is actually the flock, our flock. You <laughs> know they're flying around. Barry and Gail's birds are full of personality quirks, just like any kids. Gail, in particular, has a special relationship with Connie. The only thing is with Connie that she likes to sit in my shirt. She'll jump in my shirt. I'll open up the door, she'll climb up, jump in my shirt, and pop out to say hello. And Bandit... Well, I wish your audience could, the audience could see that. What we have here is uh, Bandit is our caique, a black-headed caique. If you want to talk about comical things, there you go. 
He's a show-off. He's right now hanging upside down by one leg and swinging back and forth. The megaphones that we have on each yeah. of the cage, the cockatiel, the yellow one, he'll put his head in there and he'll be singing or, or like a call, whistling. whistling, and it sounds like the phone, and we think it's our phone going off. He's learned to imitate the telephone ringing, so you actually think sometimes the phone rings. Sometimes you start to answer the phone. He's, he's so good at it. <laughs> We have a couple of uh, parrots that like to play a game, which is called run under the table or run under the cage, and we have to go fishing for them uh, to get them. Some of them like to play the game of chase me, try to catch me, because they know they're quicker and smaller than us. And this is Ruby. Put it back. This is a green cheek, Kanya. Very feisty, this little one. We found them under the couch when we were in the apartment. They've gone under our bed when, we, when they came into the bedroom. Uh, but the most is really the dining room table that you have to literally get on our fours and get them. But, they'll sit right in the middle underneath, the furthest away they can get from you and make you come after them. Yeah. So. And also, okay. the Amazons climb on top of the cage. i got to get on the stepladder because I'm only 5'3 in order to get them down. <laughs> So there, there's some moments where you, you, you have to laugh about it because that's what birds do. They want to get into trouble. Hello. Do you get many quiet moments here at the house? Sure. No. Listen, no, right now. Listen. No. Do you hear a bird? Oh. Absolutely not. <laughs> this is quiet, but not really. When she comes out, she makes a lot of noise, and she's the one who interrogates everyone. No, the answer is no. The bird noise has actually caused the Schwartz's problems in the past. Before they moved to their current house, they lived in a co-op apartment where the neighbors took issue with all their pets. For Gail, life in the co-op was quite difficult. Hectic, crazy, noisy, people being too nosy. How many birds do you have? Oh, your house must be dirty. How do you take care of all of them? Well, first of all, I didn't tell them how many birds they had because it was none of their business. My house was immaculate because I cleaned, what, three times a day because I wasn't working at the time. You could eat off the floor, you know, basically. Now it's quiet, enjoyable. We don't care if the birds make noise or they're flying around the house. And our neighbors don't care because, again, they said they don't even hear them. And, and I've asked them the times when they've all been squawking their heads off. And they, they only really hear them if the windows are open here. And they hear them a little bit. So we're lucky. One of the advantages of the new house is a large basement where Gail and Barry store bird food and supplies. As we walked downstairs, the couple described just how they went about choosing names for all their kids. He hates the names I pick out. Uh, for some reason, I like uh, semi precious names like Sapphire, which I got. Emerald, ruby. Which is okay by me, too, because I'm a geologist by profession. Yeah. So, so yeah, as Gail says, we have a, an emerald, a ruby, a sapphire. We don't have a diamond yet, no. but maybe. <laughs> and then we started doing food names. So we got a pepper. We have an olive. Pickle. Who, pickle. Well, yeah. that one was easy. It looked like a sour pickle. <laughs> uh, that's it. That's it with mm. the food. But basically... We go back and forth, you know, arguing, you know, and then we'll come back. The names that came out for these birds, 
that we just got the firecracker he thought of, and I thought, oh, that's a good idea. Why don't we need the blue crown sky? So it worked out that, you know, we were able to bounce it off with each other. Bandit and Rainbow. Connie and Pickle. Connie and Pickle. Julie Moe and Sapphire. Charlie, Emerald, Ruby, Olive, and Cinnamon. Sammy and Tori. Juggling all these birds is a lot of work for Gail and Barry. When it comes to dinner time, the couple has to keep in mind 23 different food preferences. And many of the birds can be very finicky eaters. Oh, boy. Uh... Connie, my son Connie that I was telling you about, she'll throw the food at us, literally, because she can't find the sunflower seeds. And if she doesn't like something in there, she'll just shovel it, shovel out. it out. And you can hear it cascading yeah. from, the, from the other room. While her cage mate, the little brown-throated Kanye, he's, he's sitting there screaming at her, saying, hey, maybe I want to eat that. You know, don't throw it all out. So they have arguments. They literally have arguments. I know it's hard to believe, but you, you have to see it to believe it. Two parrots having an argument over, over food or, or, toys. Or, or toys. But, yeah, they can, they can be finicky. We, we have a list upstairs of, of who gets what. Some birds love pasta. Some, this is like a, like a popcorn. Um, There's the pepper. Some of them want hot pepper. peppers. Our two Indian, our, my male Indian ringneck is a freak for jalapeno peppers, dried jalapeno. Me too. So we, we eat them together. We uh, have cooked food. Yeah, they love a lot of them. Some of them love cooked food. Some of them throw it right out of the cup. Um, the, it's it's kind of like a Polynesian mix or it's what they call cinnamon spice. But so you serve it to them warm. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them bury them, their faces in it. Even like pretzels. It's, it's like a birdie pretzel. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, we do have some yeah. finicky eaters, but we've learned... Who likes what? Uh, and of course, most of them, if not all, love fresh fruit and vegetables. Pears, apples. Uh, green peppers, red peppers, squash, shredded carrots, sliced carrots, yeah. uh, they, they, snow peas, green beans. And kids don't usually eat this, but my, <laughs> mine do. At the end of the day, after spending the evening with their birds, the Schwartzes cover up the cages and say goodnight. It's a ritual that any parent would recognize, tucking a child in for bed. In your typical household, parents and children may have their differences or act up every once in a while, but they love each other nonetheless. And the Gale and Barry Schwartz family, all 25 of them, is no different. You're listening to Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. Let's once again visit with Jody Kruskal and his concertina tunes. He's a Brooklyn musician who performs at local contra dances and other social events. But he's also got a host of bird songs in his repertoire. Well, here's here's one you might like. Let me. Uh, the, well, this is a this is a kids song, and I do a lot of kids performance. Uh, this is a song to help you learn how to spell the word chicken. See. That's the way it begins. H, that's the second letter in I. I am the third, and C is the fourth letter in this word. K, I'm near the end. E, I'm just filling in. C-H-I-C-K-E-N, that's the way you spell chicken. We'll hear from Jody one more time at the end of the show. 
But for now, let's visit with another person inspired by bird sounds. Nina Kachadorian is a local artist whose latest project takes bird calls and reinterprets them using the human voice. My name is Nina Kachadorian. I'm a conceptual artist. I work with a lot of different media, including sound. Um, sound is something I'm really interested in right now. And this piece at Wave Hill is called Please, Please, Please to Mecha and springs from my interest in bird sounds, bird song particularly, and the, the incredible difficulty of trying to describe that sound using language. Standing underneath a, a beautiful large magnolia tree that, that is the, the first tree uh, on our sort of group of six trees here at Wave Hill that have my soundtracks in them. And this one is, um, is the one that holds the sound of the chestnut-sided warbler, which is a bird native to Wave Hill, and which has the mnemonic, please, please, please to meet you. It's the title of, of my piece, and it's um, the bird that I kind of wanted to be here at the entrance greeting people as they came in, because it has this kind of welcome call. The please, please, please to Michas that come out of this tree uh, begin kind of friendly and get a little more aggressive. It's almost as if um, these voices, are, the, the male voices especially, maybe are kind of like forcing themselves on the viewer a little bit, <laughs> assertively so. Because I think of this at heart as a kind of translation problem, this whole issue of how you describe this difficult particular kind of sound using human language. Um, I decided I really wanted to work with people who themselves were translators to vocalize these sounds. So I got in touch with a number of people at the UN who work there as translators and had them come to my studio and working from a number of written materials that I had compiled, I had them try to just try to just imagine what this sound being described was and to, to vocalize, to make that sound. So these people had never heard the bird. That was really important to me, that they wouldn't know what the real bird sounded like. And they're basically, in every case, doing this very sort of creative act of interpretation. So we're, we're now approaching um, a linden tree, and, and in, this, in this linden um, we have the sound of the white-throated sparrow. White-throated sparrow is known for saying, um, among other things, poor Sam Peabody, Peabody, Peabody. So that's one sort of um, running theme through this particular soundtrack. There's this whole question of, you know, was it important for them to really end up sounding like the birds? And no, that wasn't actually important to me. I was most interested in how they would sort of do this interpretation. That said, um, sometimes they do get very close to what the bird sounds like. We're under a large uh, eastern white pine right now, which has the soundtrack for the chickadee. The chickadee has this really sort of sad song.
So the Black Cap Chickadees song um, is usually just transcribed as Phoebe. But there's also a mnemonic, pretty well-known mnemonic for it, which is cheeseburger. So I was playing around with this cheeseburger word and in part um, put that bird in this tree because we're very near the patio where the cafe, uh, outdoor cafe seating area is. I'd like people to have an experience here where they might hear these human sounds before they actually realize there are speakers in a tree. When you get to a tree, it's not hard to see that there are speakers in this tree. But I, I like the fact that there's sort of this sound confusion. You don't really know what you're hearing at first. You might think you're actually hearing a bird at first. And there's also a lot of bird sound ambiently around here and, and nice moments where there, there's sort of real birds and then these sort of human birds that, uh, that have a kind of accidental interaction a lot of the time. I've seen a lot of situations where kids have run up to a tree and been very excited that there's sound coming out of it. I think that sound also does this nice thing at best where you start to hear a lot more in your environment because you've sort of been surprised by one sound and suddenly a lot more can open up. So I hope that that's the experience people have had. I hope it makes them hear the birds more too. That's Nina Kachadorian discussing her installation at Wave Hill Public Gardens. Now, one more time, is Jody Kruskal. He showed up at the WFUV studios with a number of bird calls, which he straps around his neck in the same way other musicians would a harmonica. Here's Jody's crow-call-infused version of Yes, Sir, That's My Baby. Yes, sir, that's my baby! Thanks for joining us on Cityscape. The weather is changing and lots of birds are heading south, so get out there and enjoy them before the winter settles in. Remember, you can listen to an archived version of this or any other Cityscape at WFUV.org. You'll also find information there on how to podcast the program. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend. Cityscape is supported by the Museums of Lower Manhattan, located south of Houston Street. The Museum of American Financial History is in the old Standard Oil Building, where John D. Rockefeller forged his reputation as a captain of industry. And it's one of the 15 unique museums of Lower Manhattan. Info at museumsoflowermanhattan.org.